When the war was commenced, Canada was not the end, but the means. The object of the war being the redress of injuries, and Canada being the instrument by which that redress was to be obtained. But it has ever been my opinion that if Canada is conquered, it ought never to be surrendered, if it can possibly be retained. That government is sensible of the advantages which will accrue from the possession of Canada, you may well be assured, and that it will get all it can in making a peace its desire of fame, to say nothing of its love of country, affords a significant guarantee. Henry Clay, 1813 Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 16, The War of 1812, Part 2 In the summer of 1812, just after the American declaration of war on Great Britain, the city of Washington, D.C. was a curious and somewhat depressing place. The city barely existed in the first place. Much of the land was still swampy. Roads were usually wet and choked with mud, and the broad avenues of the federal capital ran past unfinished, half-finished, and not too long ago finished buildings, many of them, like the White House and the Capitol, built by slaves. Just off the muddy streets were soggy fields still filled with tree stumps. Clouds of whining mosquitoes filled the hot, muggy air. The water was bad, especially at the White House. Like every other house in the area, it drew its drinking water from the Potomac River, which was also the city's sewer main. The water was filled with bacteria. Many residents, including often the president and his family, fled the city during the summer months because of the threat of disease was extremely high. At the end of June 1812, this city was the capital of a country at war with the world's most powerful nation. Yet you wouldn't think so, rattling around the muddy streets in a slow-moving cart, or walking around mopping your sweaty brow with a damp rag. If you visited the War Department building, supposedly the nerve center of this war, you'd find it a strange and chaotic place, but definitely not the buzzing, well-oiled machine you'd expect for the importance of the things going on there. The staff of the War Department was small in 1812. There were only 11 clerks who worked there, all of them new hires, not a single one having worked there a year earlier. The amount of paperwork that churned through this department, all generated by hand with pen and ink, was staggering. Those poor 11 clerks were snowed under with papers. In the run-up to the declaration of war in late 1811 and early 1812, President Madison asked Congress to provide for two assistant secretaries of war to help with the workload, but the Senate refused. 
The Secretary of War was one William Eustis, a Massachusetts doctor. He was pretty good at politics, but let's just say that administration was never his strong suit, even if he had a proper staff and the War Department was working well, which it wasn't. Indeed, the system of administration of war matters was so shoddy that one senator who came to call upon Secretary of War Eustis found him in his office paging through newspaper classified ads looking for a retail merchant where he could buy 100 pairs of shoes or 200 hats to outfit the army. This was how the War of 1812 went for the United States, at least at first. And I tell you this anecdote because realizing how unprepared we were for the conflict, which as I explained in the last episode, only a handful of ambitious politicians wanted at all, realizing that unpreparedness helps explain why the war went so badly for us. If you look at what really happened, the story of the War of 1812 is not a feel-good story full of patriotic anecdotes demonstrating the awesome power of American exceptionalism. It's a story of diplomatic stupidity, bureaucratic inertia, military ineptitude, political miscalculation, and financial malfeasance. And a few victories here and there. That's the reality of the War of 1812. Yet somehow, the feel-good patriotic story is the one that's managed to stick. This is why I think what little that Americans generally know about the war hovers around the very few poles of the conflict that can arguably fall into that positive, patriotic, exceptionalist category. The story of the Star-Spangled Banner and the Battle of New Orleans, mainly. So this is the real story, the one that's far less known and understood than the quick blurbs you see on History Channel documentaries or tour brochures. It's a fascinating story, but one that will make you facepalm more than once before it's over. Join me now for part two of our journey into the War of 1812. When the United States declared war on Britain in 1812, the men who were most responsible for this policy people like Henry Clay, Speaker of the House of Representatives, saw a tantalizing prospect dangling in front of their eyes, the potential conquest of Canada. When the music stopped at the end of the American Revolution, the British still had significant holdings in Canada, what was then called Upper Canada, north of the Great Lakes, mainly modern-day Ontario, and Lower Canada, mainly Quebec. Americans had coveted these provinces for a long time. In 1775, as I said in the last episode, a Patriot army made an unsuccessful attempt to snatch Canada from the British. Now, in 1812, a lot of war hawks saw the conflict as a golden opportunity to try again. On paper, it didn't seem like too far-fetched a plan. The British had only about 7,000 troops stationed in Canada, and they were so distracted by the war with Napoleon in Europe that it wasn't too likely they could spare a bunch to go hold down Canada, especially if American forces struck first, before the British could send any reinforcements. There were also signs, promising for the Americans at least, that the British residents in Canada weren't too happy with the British government. The border was pretty nebulous, and a lot of Canadians were pretty American, culturally and economically. American supporters of the war thought there was a lot of discontent they could capitalize on. You see where this is going. Yes, it's true, as they did in another more recent war, some politicians expected that American troops, when they got to Montreal, would be welcomed as liberators. John Randolph, fiery congressman from Virginia, said that, quote, with no expense of blood or treasure on our part, 
Canada is to conquer herself. She is to be subdued by the principles of fraternity. Perhaps taking this idea a little too far, an American general, William Hull, issued a proclamation in 1812 intended for Canadians. It said, quote, You will be emancipated from tyranny and oppression and restored to the dignified station of freemen. What horrible oppression the Canadians were supposedly to be liberated from was left unsaid. There are worse fates than having to drink Molson and eat a lot of maple syrup. It's kind of hard to imagine Toronto as a brutal gulag, but this was evidently the idea that some starry-eyed Americans got into their heads at the beginning of the war. With as dysfunctional as the war machine was, though, actually conquering Canada was going to be a pretty tall order. The army was disorganized. According to Winfield Scott, then a lieutenant colonel in the army, and eventually to become the most distinguished army officer of the pre-Civil War era, most of the senior officers in the army in 1812 were either incompetent, lazy, or drunk. Enlisted men were totally green. They didn't have much experience, and some of the new volunteers, raised haphazardly in the states just after war was declared, were little more than organized bandits, in the view of one officer. One of the reasons the war hawks in Congress weren't too concerned initially with problems within the army was that they expected state militia would fill the gap. The second decade was a time of transition in military and logistical theory. Large standing armies of professional soldiers really weren't in vogue anywhere in the world, and the European armies bashing away at each other across the Atlantic, especially Napoleon's, were mostly conscripts. They didn't do that in the United States. It was thought that militia, citizen soldiers who owned their own weapons and would turn out in force to fight a temporary military threat, was much more preferable in a republic than a standing army. This is the thinking behind the Second Amendment, which was passed initially to preserve the institution of the militia. In 1812, though, the militia was pretty much a failure. Many states called up their militias, but only in New England and the West did any significant numbers of usable troops actually show up. Even then, they were pretty useless, and their expenses, which were borne by the states, were colossal. Most of the land fighting done by American forces in the War of 1812 was done by the actual U.S. Federal Army, not state militias, with a few notable exceptions. Raising an army, from whatever source, is only half the battle. Once you have troops, you have to keep them fed, supplied, and healthy enough to fight. The story I told you about the Secretary of War paging through classified ads to buy supplies for the army is indicative of just how bad the system of supply really was. In 1802, as part of the new President Thomas Jefferson's trim-down of the armed forces, Congress abolished two key departments in the U.S. Army, the Quartermaster's Department, which kept them supplied, and the Commissary Department, which kept the troops fed. In modern terms, these functions were outsourced to private contractors. This was not a good idea. A lot of the contractors were crooked, and if they were, it was hard to terminate their contracts or to get them to stop. A crooked dealer could sell bad flour to the army at a markup and almost always get away with it. A doctor at one army camp found crap in the bread. Literally, crap in the bread. From the beginning, wherever there were significant camps of army troops, there were outbreaks of disease. This was the state of the U.S. Army in the summer of 1812. Things were not destined to go well once the fighting started, which it did in surprisingly short order. Even before the declaration of war, there was an American army assembling in Ohio. 
William Hull, that general who proclaimed he was going to liberate Canada, received orders to march to Fort Detroit. Once war was declared, the obvious target was Fort Malden, a British outpost in the Great Lakes region. In early July 1812, Hull led an army into British territory, an invasion of Canada. Skirmishes between American troops on one side and mixed forces of British and Native Americans on the other began to break out. Unfortunately, Hull wasn't much of a commander, and he lost his nerve pretty quickly. Ultimately, he retreated back to Detroit, tempting the British general, a fellow named Brock, to come after him. Brock correctly judged that Hull was terrified of massed Indian attacks. So, as Hull forded up Detroit and battened it down for a siege, Brock used an old espionage trick. He allowed a fake document to be captured by American spies. The document spoke of a huge army of Native American warriors who were making ready to burn Fort Detroit to the ground. Brock sent a message to Hull, politely suggesting, in that oh-so-British way, that he might think about the possibility of surrendering. Brock said, quote, It is far from my inclination to join in a war of extermination, but you must be aware that the numerous body of Indians who have attached themselves to my troops will be beyond control the moment the contest commences. End quote. There were lots of women and children inside Fort Detroit, including Hull's own. Brock's ruse and his artfully sinister demand for surrender had the intended effect. Hull turned to jelly. On August 16, 1812, he surrendered Fort Detroit and his entire army, leaving thousands of pounds of gunpowder and other supplies for the British to take. When he got back to the U.S., Hull was court-martialed for cowardice. The court sentenced him to death, sentence commuted. Still, he was ruined for the rest of his life. The first U.S. campaign against the British on land basically went, forgive the expression, tits up. In addition to the disaster involving Hull, two other important forts, Mackinac and Dearborn, were in British hands by the end of the summer. When October came, it was about the last chance, weather-wise, for a military campaign before winter set in. The Madison administration decided it had to make one more try to grab Canada. In October 1812, an army under the command of General Stephen Van Rensselaer, a New York militia officer who got the job because he was politically connected, crossed the Niagara River into Canada with the objective of capturing Queenston Heights on the British-held side. Meanwhile, another army under General Alexander Smith was supposed to attack Fort George, six miles north. The invasion, if you could call it that, was a joke. Smith, who was a regular army, refused to take orders from a mere militia officer, so he and Van Rensselaer couldn't coordinate their attacks. To make matters worse, Van Rensselaer's departure was delayed because, get this, somebody ran off with all the oars from the boats that they were going to use to cross the river. Real military geniuses, these people. Anyway, on October 13, 1812, a force of American troops finally made it across the Niagara River, and there was a battle the first big land battle of the War of 1812, if you don't count Tippecanoe. At first, things went pretty well. American forces under Winfield Scott held Queenston Heights. General Brock, that bad Brit who bamboozled Hull out of Detroit, took a musket ball to the chest. Winning the battle at this point should have been straightforward. Van Rensselaer, the American commander, did the right thing for once. He ordered the New York militia to cross over the river to reinforce Scott but the militiamen were spooked by the sight of the dead and wounded coming back across the river in boats. They turned and ran. 
Scott and a force of 950 American troops were captured by the British. This force, which surrendered incidentally, included a fascinating group of soldiers that came to be known as the Queenston 23. I'm going to tell their story in much more detail in a future episode. The Battle of Queenston Heights was a crushing defeat for American armies. Not long after, an assault on Plattsburgh on Lake Champlain, supposed to be a prelude to an attack on Montreal, similarly ended in a Keystone Cops-like disaster, with American forces shooting at each other instead of the Brits. So much for the idea that it would be a cakewalk, and that the Canucks would welcome Americans as liberators. By November 1812, having been humiliated all over the U.S.-Canada border, the Madison administration had considerable egg on its face. This was not good, considering November 1812 was the month when voters had to decide whether Madison and his Democratic-Republican majority in both houses of Congress would keep their jobs. The elections of 1812 were supposed to be easy for the Democratic-Republicans. If you think back to the very first episode of this podcast, you'll recall that the system for presidential elections in the second decade was the Congressional Caucus Method. This meant that a party caucus, consisting of members of that party who served in the House of Representatives and the Senate, got together and decided who they would tell their party's electors in their states to support for president. Because the Federalists were such an ineffectual minority, the Democratic-Republican Party caucus, which happened months before the real election, essentially was the presidential election. At least, that's how it was supposed to be. Even before war was declared, in May 1812, the Democratic-Republicans held their caucus. To no one's surprise, about two-thirds of the party members pledged their support to James Madison for president and John Langdon for vice president. Langdon, incidentally, refused the nomination. He was replaced by Elbridge Gerry, who eventually died in office. The party, however, wasn't united. In the summer, a faction of Democratic-Republicans from New York rallied behind another candidate, DeWitt Clinton. Their beef was that the caucus system was unfair and democratic, and the Virginians like James Madison, who was running for his second term after two terms of fellow Virginian Thomas Jefferson, were establishing a Virginia dynasty. This was also an issue in the 1816 election, which we talked about in episode one. Clinton also accused Madison of mismanaging the war, a pretty powerful charge, as we've seen. The Federalists pounced. At their convention in New York in September 1812, there was a struggle over whether they should nominate their own candidate, who was obviously going to lose, or whether they should try to splinter the Democratic-Republican Party by throwing their support to the Clinton faction. Ultimately, they didn't officially endorse anybody, but the convention was seen as a tacit endorsement of Clinton. Neither candidate actively campaigned. You just didn't do that in 1812. You had to pretend the office was being reluctantly thrust upon you. Clinton's supporters punished Madison in the newspapers for the various setbacks on the battlefield. Madison's surrogates started flinging mud at Clinton. One newspaper compared him to Oliver Cromwell, the dictator of the British Civil War era. This was pretty strong stuff in 1812. About half the states had real polls to choose presidential electors. The other half chose their electors by the vote of the state legislatures and states voted at different times, so the election itself took about two months. It appears that at some point Madison was worried he might lose. November was described as a dark and dismal month at the White House, unfavorable vote tallies coming in, plus ever more bad news from the battlefronts. 
When it was all over, the Democratic Republicans didn't do as well as they hoped. Madison was re-elected 128 electoral votes to 89 for DeWitt Clinton. Madison has won his first election in 1808 by 122 to 47, so he was considerably less popular the second time around. The party also lost seats in Congress, but not enough to give the Federalists any more real power than they already held. Congress, which was already meeting at the time of the election, debated and passed a number of bills to try to beef up the Army and Navy. Finally, somebody got it. But they were continually distracted throughout this process by repeated debates about the war itself. It was very clear that the Congress and the nation were very divided. Not the best situation in the middle of a war. On March 4, 1813, Madison took the oath of office for the second time on the steps of the Capitol. Because he had no military successes to boast about, he spent a significant portion of his inaugural address blasting Native Americans and the British for supposedly inciting them. It's really kind of an amazing speech. He's talking about the British here. Quote, They have not, it is true, taken into their own hands the hatchet and the knife, devoted to indiscriminate massacre. But they have let loose the savages, armed with these cruel instruments, have allured them into their service, and carry them to battle by their sides, eager to glut their savage thirst with the blood of the vanquished, and to finish the work of torture and death on maimed and defenseless captives. And, what was never before seen, British commanders have extorted victory over the unconquerable valor of our troops by presenting to the sympathy of their chief captives awaiting massacre from their savage associates. And now we find them, in further contempt of the modes of honorable warfare, supplying the place of a conquering force by attempts to disorganize our political society, to dismember our confederated republic. End quote. Big words from such a little president. Madison was only five foot one, but he knew it was going to take a lot more than hot air to beat either the British or the Native Americans on the frontier. But the problem was, in early 1813, the United States still didn't have its act together. It was plain to everybody that Madison was losing the war. The only real bright spot in America's military record in 1812 and early 1813 came in the realm of naval warfare. The U.S. generally fared much better on water than on land. Ironic, really, given the Democratic-Republican Party's hostility to naval armaments. The U.S. had 17 ships in 1812, of which seven were heavy frigates. The USS Constitution, which you can see and tour in Boston Harbor, was one of these, undoubtedly the most famous. With their massive and well-trained navy, it's a wonder that the British didn't blockade the American coasts and starve us into submission which was easily conceivable. The issue for them, though, was Napoleon. The British were worried about Napoleon rebuilding his fleet in the Mediterranean, so they were reluctant to send ships to harass Americans when they might soon be needed to blast Bonaparte's fleet back into the smoldering driftwood they'd made of it at Trafalgar in 1805. There were a few blockading ships and coastal raiders, but generally American warships could usually escape out into the open ocean and with the application of skill and a lot of luck, occasionally wreak havoc on British ships. On August 19, 1812, the USS Constitution had a famous battle with a British frigate, the HMS Guerriere, in the Atlantic, 
This, and perhaps some other famous incidents involving the USS Constitution, are going to be the subject of a standalone episode. For our purposes now, suffice it to say that the Constitution did very well against the Brits, and later, in December, against the HMS Java off the coast of Brazil. Constitution, incidentally, was commanded by Isaac Hull, nephew of that simpering fellow who'd surrendered Fort Detroit. For all I've said about the ineptitude of the U.S. government and army during the War of 1812, the same does not go for the Navy. The historical evidence is very clear that American seamanship was simply superb, not just in the Navy, but in private merchant vessels that were commissioned as privateers when war broke out. These ships preyed on British shipping off the coast of Canada. A report from Halifax, Nova Scotia in the early months of the war said, quote, American privateers annoy this place to a degree astonishingly injurious. Scarcely a day passes, but crews are coming in that have had their vessels taken and sunk. End quote. Consider this statistic. The British had been fighting France off and on for 20 years. In all that time, they fought more than 200 naval engagements with France and French allies. And of those 200 plus, the Brits lost only five. Her numbers against American ships were much, much worse. The British were stunned enough by the naval prowess of the United States that in 1813 the Admiralty finally started dispatching more ships to the Western Atlantic, Napoleon be damned. The British also stepped up construction of new warships, but their design wasn't up to the Americans. To the extent there's any good news for American forces in the first half of the War of 1812, it came from the high seas. It was not until the opening of the next campaign season, in the spring of 1813, that there were any significant American victories on land. Military strategy in the second decade was generally planned in terms of seasons, as it had been, with a few notable exceptions, since ancient times. As ice melted and rivers and roads across the frontier became passable again, American military planners were again focused on Canada. Part of the strategy was to gain control of the Great Lakes, not just on land but on water. American ships began to appear on the lakes in larger numbers in 1813, and this was coordinated with attacks by land armies. In April, American forces landed west of York, now Toronto, Ontario. Zebulon Pike, famed frontier explorer, was one of the officers on the American side. American troops defeated a force of 700 British and Native Americans and drove the Brits out of York but somebody found a scalp hanging in one of York's main government buildings. Since American frontier troops rarely needed much of an excuse to go on a rampage against Indian atrocities, real or perceived, the troops sacked and looted York, carried off anything of value, and burned down the town. Later on, in 1814, the British would claim that their burning of Washington, D.C. was payback for this raid. Things were going a little better in the field, but the government in Washington was still disorganized and ineffectual. The summer of 1813 was particularly hot, sticky, and miserable in the capital. Politicians were irritable and distracted by various complaints, often health-related. Remember how I said that the water at the White House drawn from the Potomac was particularly dangerous? In June 1813, President Madison came down with some sort of severe illness. They called it bilious fever at the time, but then again a lot of different diseases were called bilious fever in the second decade. What we do know is that Madison was deathly ill for five weeks and almost died. If he had croaked, the consequences would have been potentially disastrous. 
A president had never died in office before, and the Constitution was not at all clear as to what would happen if one did. Considering that when it did finally happen, when William Henry Harrison died in 1841, there was briefly a constitutional crisis over succession, you can imagine how that could have paralyzed the government right in the middle of the war. Even if the result was, as we now understand constitutional succession today, the vice president succeeding a dead president, that meant that the president would have been Elbridge Gerry. Gerry himself died in November 1814. If he'd been president at that time, who knows what might have happened. Perhaps the nation is very lucky that Madison started feeling better toward the end of that nightmare summer. In any event, he survived. Also sick in the summer of 1813, and probably with the same thing, was an American admiral, Oliver Hazard Perry, who had been dispatched to Lake Erie as part of a strategy to gain control of the Great Lakes region. Finally, somebody in Washington had realized that Americans were much better at naval engagements than land battles. Between rounds of battling his bilious fever, Perry supervised the construction of four new warships on Lake Erie, with which he intended to challenge the British fleet on the lake. The Brits knew a battle was coming. Both sides were short on troops to man their ships, but the British problems with manpower were even worse. At Fort Malden, their base, the British had to feed and supply not only their own troops, but 14,000 Native Americans, civilians as well as warriors. They were rapidly running out of food. On September 10, 1813, Perry, in command of his ship the Lawrence, engaged the British squadron on Lake Erie. The ships pounded away at each other for two hours. Perry's guys took an incredible 80% casualties. But Perry was a dogged commander. Taking command of another ship, the Niagara, after the Lawrence was pretty much blasted to smithereens, Perry came back and crushed the Brits, ultimately capturing six British vessels. This broke British control of Lake Erie. It was from a note Perry sent after this battle to none other than William Henry Harrison that we got the quote that attaches to Perry's name. We have met the enemy, and they are ours. Oliver Hazard Perry was the first real national hero of the War of 1812. He collected a bit over $12,000 in prize money from the capture of the British ships, the equivalent of over $150,000 today. Though he was a hero in 1813, Perry went on to a highly controversial career later in the war and after it. He had a constant rivalry with one Captain Jesse Elliott, incidentally his second-in-command at the Battle of Lake Erie. At one point, Elliott, incensed at the crap Perry was constantly flinging at him, challenged him to a duel. He refused. Perry died in South America in 1819. His younger brother, Matthew Perry, was the U.S. Naval Commodore who sailed boldly into Tokyo Bay in 1853 beginning a long chain of events that would ultimately lead the United States and Japan into conflict at Pearl Harbor. There were various other military actions on the frontier and on the U.S.-Canada front in the summer of 1813. There was action on Lake Champlain, for example, and a long list of smallish battles, smallish but many still quite ferocious, at various forts all over the Old Northwest. The siege of Fort Meigs in Ohio, which is reenacted every Memorial Day, is a representative example. I'm not going to go into all of these smaller battles. I could make an entire podcast series on them. In fact, there is such a thing. In 2015, there was a short-lived podcast specifically about the War of 1812. Military history is not really my thing, though, and this episode is about the broad strokes of the war, as opposed to the operational details. 
Let's just conclude this phase by saying that the 1813 campaigns, both on land and sea, were a mixed bag for both sides. There were some American successes, there were some British losses, and vice versa. What's interesting is that during 1813 you start to see the tide turning more toward what you would have expected to see at the beginning. The Americans doing better on land, and the British starting to struggle back to dominance at sea. There are really two developments during the year of 1813 that would eventually have a tremendous impact on the War of 1812. More important, I think, than battles between American and British forces at this fort or that one, or even the booming cannon strike your colors type stuff of naval warfare, which admittedly is quite exciting. I mean, who doesn't like dramatic battles in the golden age of sea warfare? But to understand the War of 1812 and why it came out the way it did, we have to look beyond all that. As all these ship engagement and fort battles were unfolding, so too was a major event in Native American history, what's come to be known as the Red Stick War. This finally gets us back to the Native American side of the conflict, which we last left when the forces of Tenskwatawa, the Prophet, were defeated at the Battle of Tippecanoe in November 1811, a few months before the U.S.-British War broke out. Essentially, there was, at the time of the War of 1812, a major civil war within one of the largest Indian nations in the United States, the Creeks. Predictably, this civil war among Native Americans erupted as a result of the pressures put on Indian populations by the policies of the U.S. government, as well as economic and cultural pressures on the frontier. At the beginning of the second decade, the Creeks were splitting into two main factions. The main issue was the degree to which the tribe should seek to assimilate into, or at least engage, with white American culture. Americans called those who tended toward assimilation progressive Creeks, while another faction resisted assimilation, and some among them even favored open conflict with the whites. In 1811, Tecumseh and his brother Tenskwatawa, who were Shawnee, traveled to Creek lands, mostly in Alabama, Mississippi, and other parts of the Southeast, to try to gain Creek allies in the war they were ramping up against the U.S. government. This was the war that was settled at Tippecanoe, when William Henry Harrison defeated the Shawnee and their allies, thus diminishing the power and influence of the prophet, Tenskwatawa. For the Creeks, though, their own conflict was just getting started. The radical pro-war faction in the Creek Nation came to be known as the Red Sticks. They were called that because they carried clubs painted red, signifying war, as opposed to white, which meant peace. Several spiritual leaders had arisen within the Creek Nation, similar to the Prophet, and preaching a similar message, expel white settlers by force of arms. Now that in 1812 the United States was at war with Britain, who seemed eager to aid Native American allies, the Red Sticks thought the time to strike would never be better. Still, the Red Sticks' war against the United States ramped up fairly slowly. It really got going in February 1813, almost by accident. The Red Sticks had sent a group of warriors to confer with Tecumseh up in the northeast. On their way home, this group, led by a man named Little Warrior, set upon and attacked two families of white settlers along the Ohio River. The chiefs of the Creek Nation, who were trying their hardest to prevent conflict with Americans, tried to keep the peace by ordering Little Warrior and the other ringleaders to be hunted down and killed. This was the spark that finally blew up the Creek Nation. The Red Sticks were now out to get the Creek Nation leadership, and the chiefs sought protection from the Indian agent in the southeast. 
Then, in late July 1813, the Creek Civil War finally dragged in the United States. Earlier in the summer, a group of Red Sticks had gone to Florida, which was then controlled by the Spanish. The Spanish had promised them arms and supplies. Anyway, a group of Mississippi militia caught the Red Sticks coming back from Florida, and a battle occurred about 70 miles north of Pensacola. The Battle of Burnt Corn Creek, as it was called, was not very big. Only about 14 or 15 people were actually killed, but it had a big effect. American forces were now in direct conflict with the Red Sticks. On August 30, 1813, the Red Sticks launched a new attack in retaliation for the deaths at Burnt Corn Creek. They struck Fort Mims, which was basically a wooden stockade not far from Mobile, Alabama, defended by militia. More importantly, the stockade held a number of civilians, including women and children. The commander of the fort, Major Daniel Beasley, who had been involved in the Burnt Corn Battle, ignored warnings that Indian warriors had been seen in the area preparing for an attack, and he was taken by surprise. The battle at Fort Mims raged for hours, and eventually the stockade was put to the torch. Exactly what happened next isn't entirely clear, but when a relief force of American troops arrived at the smoking ruins of Fort Mims, they found 247 corpses, including some of those women and children. News of the Fort Mims massacre ripped through the southeast like wildfire. Everywhere in Mississippi and Alabama territory and northwards in Tennessee, Americans clamored for a swift retaliation against the Red Sticks. Militias started getting called up. The war, once relegated to the northwest frontiers and the high seas, was now striking much deeper. Tennessee rapidly became the political and military headquarters for dealing with the Red Stick conflict. Predictably, the overall commander of American forces in this phase of the war arose from the Tennessee militia, in the form of a major general in the militia named Andrew Jackson, who here makes his first big appearance onto the stage of American history. At the time he stepped forward to lead the militia against the Red Sticks, Jackson was a little weak. In September 1813, he somehow got involved in a brawl with two brothers, Jesse and Thomas Hart Benton, later a senator, which somehow turned into a running gun battle through the streets of Nashville. This sort of behavior was pretty much par for the course for Andrew Jackson, who was one of the meanest and most thoroughly disagreeable characters in all of American history. In any event, the Benton brothers pumped two lead slugs into Old Hickory, and he was carried into an inn, gushing blood from his left shoulder. The doctors who attended him said the arm had to be amputated. Jackson refused. He kept gushing blood. One report has him soaking through two mattresses before it finally stopped. Incidentally, this was not Jackson's first gunshot wound. In 1806, he was involved in a duel with a fellow named Charles Dickinson, who Jackson murdered, and he took a bullet to the chest. Charming fellow, eh? Anyway, rising from his blood-soaked sickbed, the bullet still embedded in his shoulder, Jackson grabbed his sword and enthusiastically ran off to command the Tennessee militia to lay waste to the Red Sticks. Why was he so eager? In addition to his white-hot hatred of Native Americans, which is well documented, the record suggests that Jackson saw an opportunity, through this campaign, of perhaps seizing Florida from the Spanish. He later did succeed at that, but not in this war. Two of the Tennessee troops who marched off with Jackson in the Red Stick War would also become famous in American history. Sam Houston, instrumental in the history of Texas, and the famous Davy Crockett, who, the 1950s song will have you believe, yes I have to say it, killed him a bar when he was only three. 
As we'll see, the Red Stick War, and especially Andrew Jackson's role in it, would ultimately have some pretty important repercussions for how the War of 1812 as a whole turned out, which we'll get to in the next episode. But as you know from this series, nothing happens in a vacuum. While the American frontier was exploding into bloody violence in the fall of 1813, still another conflict elsewhere in the world would impact the fortunes of James Madison and the other leaders of the American war effort. I'm talking about the famous Battle of the Nations, also known as the Battle of Leipzig, which occurred in Germany in October 1813. Neither Britain nor the United States were directly involved in this battle, but it definitely affected them both. At least until Waterloo, the Battle of the Nations was Napoleon's, well, Waterloo. At Leipzig, the armies of the coalition of European nations allied against him, Prussia, Austria, Russia, and Sweden, delivered a swift kick to the butt of the French emperor, whose army consisted mostly of old men and teenage boys, the last reserves of reliable troops in Napoleon's empire having mostly perished in the retreat from Moscow. Essentially, it was curtains for old Bonaparte. The defeat at Leipzig ultimately led to Napoleon's abdication in early 1814. How did this impact the War of 1812? Well, it was pretty welcome news for the Brits, who read with delight the accounts of the decisive coalition victory against Napoleon, a victory in which their troops did not have to take part. With Napoleon rapidly becoming the incredible shrinking man, it was obvious that both further large-scale military conflicts on the continent and his budding project to rebuild his navy in the Mediterranean were off the table. That meant, at last, that the British finally had some troops and ships to spare, forces they'd been carefully holding back in case they were needed to crush Napoleon once and for all. In the fall of 1813, after the Battle of Nations, the British cabinet started diverting troops, supplies, and ships to the American conflict. The Brits were no longer fighting a two-front war. The Battle of Nations effectively ended any chance that the United States could conquer Canada. You remember how I said military strategy was planned seasonally. Well, Madison and his buddies had now had two complete seasons, 1812 and 1813, to do what Henry Clay and John Randolph had insisted would be so easy, and they blew it. By the time the snow melted and armies could move again in the spring of 1814, Canada would be as full of British redcoat troops as the Air Canada Centre is with drunken hockey fans during a Toronto Maple Leafs game. What few military successes there were then marked 1813 as the high watermark of the war for the United States. As you'll see in the next episode, at least until New Orleans, it's all downhill from here, and the year 1814 would prove so disastrous that the very existence of the United States seemed to hang in the balance. We'll get to that story in part three of this series on the War of 1812. If you liked this podcast, please share it, tell somebody about it, mention it on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever's your thing. Leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes is especially helpful because it will help other history buffs, like you, find this podcast. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include The War of 1812, A Forgotten Conflict by Donald R. Hickey, University of Illinois Press, 1989. Music Credits 
The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast is written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.